Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. NAFTA negotiations uh, continuing, we're told. Uh, and, uh, well, yesterday the president, of course, uh, Donald Trump, made some uh, pronouncements about that. Uh, he, uh, well, in, in a rather rambling press conference, uh, he uh, suggested, for instance, that uh, he had uh, turned down a one-on-one meeting with uh, Prime Minister Trudeau. The Prime Minister's office, by the way, says that uh, there was never a request for one. Uh, but he went on and on and took some pretty big shots at the Prime Minister, at the NAFTA team, and, and the whole process in general. What we're probably going to do is call it the USMC, like the United States Marine Corps, which I love. General Kelly likes it even more. Where's General Kelly? He likes that. USMC, which would be U.S., Mexico, Canada. But it'll probably or possibly be just USM. It'll be United States and Mexico. Canada will come along. Uh, Well, we hope they will. Uh, He's also threatened at this time to impose tariffs on cars, just Canadian cars, not anybody else, just Canada. Uh, Anyway, it's on and on and on. Typical Donald Trump stuff. But what impact, if any, is this going to have on the negotiations? Let's ask Ian Lee from the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University. Ian, thanks for the time. Great to have you with us again today. My pleasure, Bill. We have this uh, this, uh, self-imposed deadline that's hanging over our heads right now, and Trump threatening auto tariffs once again. And uh, this is not the first time that he's tried to to act tough and and suggest that he's shunned uh, the prime minister and and on and on it goes. I mean, it's not like Trump to actually fabricate stuff. So We don't know where he's going on this. But is this going to have an impact at all on the discussions that are going on? I hope so. I, I really do hope so. Um, let me explain. And I did watch the entire press conference, and you're right, it was his usual rambling on. And I think a lot of people get um, uh, uh, start to focus on his rambling digressions and going round and round the mulberry bush, uh, rather than focusing on the underlying uh, strategic issues. He has the pen to sign or reject the deal and impose tariffs. There's no way around that. No matter how much we may dislike him, um, how much we may hate him. That is a re- the reality in which we are in right now. And before I get to your question, uh, I, I just want to say to all those, and there's a lot of people that support the Prime Minister, quote, I'm going to stand up for Canada. Is there any one of those Canadians in Canada who thinks it's working? That it's going down the right road of where we want to go? I don't think anyone, not a single person, can argue this is going well or that it's going in the direction we want and that is not to say that we should roll you know fall down on the floor prostate before him it just says that it's very clear watching him and listening to him he has developed a real bee in his bonnet a real strong dislike of mr trudeau and company and i think i think it's fair to say it probably stems from the fact that they have two very different worldviews. Trudeau is a progressive, and, and Trump is a conservative. And, and the government of Canada, meaning the Trudeau government, has been really pushing that whole idea that they're very progressive, and they use the word progressive a lot. It's not me using that word. And, and this has, and in the negotiations, I mean, in the context of the NAFTA negotiations, and, and I think that this, and plus the speeches that Christia Freeland gave, two separate speeches, in Washington, not Ottawa or somewhere else. Uh, sorry, one was in Toronto, one was in Washington. And uh, this also has got under his skin. And now he's, it's almost become they're in a personal, uh, you know, uh, trap of each other. They're circling around each other. 
and they just can't seem to break out. It's very personal, though. That's very obvious. Very personal. And it, I, I, I'd like to point back to, you know, because they were seemingly cordial anyway the first yes, time or yes. two they met. But it was at that G7. And, and uh, when yes. when Trump, but I mean, in, in fairness, I mean, you know, when they asked uh, Trump before he got on his plane, basically said that we're very close to a deal that Canada's made some major concessions on dairy and a few other yes. things. And Trump, and he then he goes off and Trudeau says, we did not do that. And so he called him out, and that's that's what started the, the, the Twitter tirade. I think so, too. I do. And he certainly doesn't like being called out. And it comes back to our separate previous conversation you and I have had on this. Um, I'm very much of the Kissinger worldview, that you don't criticize other leaders. Uh, if you have differences of opinion, I mean, you don't criticize them publicly. If you have differences of opinion, you raise them behind closed doors. You don't try to embarrass them publicly. And I think that's where we went off the rails. And, uh, and, you know, I'm acknowledging, you know, that he's a bully and he's a, you know, he says nasty things, but we have to deal with that in the world of realpolitik. Realpolitik says he is the president and not some person we imagine we would like to have as a, the president of the U.S. That's not in the cards. We have to deal with the cards we've been given. That's what realpolitik says. So if we have objections to him, we should be raising them privately, not publicly, knowing it will set him off, and he will go off on these tangents. And I think, and again, I'm not trying to exonerate Trump. I'm, that's not my point. If our end goal is to get a signed deal, whatever we're doing in Ottawa is not working. It is a monumental failure. Now, if indeed our goal is not to get a deal, but it's just to keep poking him in the eye to make ourselves feel good, well, then it's a wonderful strategy. I just think that the purpose of us being there in negotiations is to actually come up with a deal, a closed signed deal. And we are not going down that road. It's clearly going down the opposite road, a road that's going to end in failure, unless we can somehow turn it around in this death spiral uh, by doing something dramatic, what Richard Nixon used to call the bold stroke. And I don't see any bold strokes coming out of Ottawa. Not that there aren't any to do, but I don't see them coming out because although we, um, we all note that Trump has obviously got a real deep B in his bonnet about Trudeau, I think it's very fair to say that Trudeau equally and the people around him have an equally deep uh, 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 anger or distrust or dislike of Trump, so it's it is reciprocal. It's reciprocal. There's reciprocity here. Oh yeah, both both sides of each other. Yeah, they're both <laughs> dipping into the bombast vat here to, to oh. and, and tossing bombs at each other. But exactly. but Ian, how do you deal with the misinformation? And Trump did it again yesterday when he was ranting about Canada and saying, "Well, their tariffs are too high." Well, you know, our David Aiken, our, our global bureau chief, he did some checking. Canadian tariffs are half the size of American tariffs. I mean, that's that's not true. It's simply untrue. But that's what he's trying to do to substantiate his point of view that uh, that right. we're being unfair a I agree with you and B and I've had people write me on this and say you know this very point and and my answer has been they could every country controls who whatever person or goods they want to come into that country I mean we we forget that fact every country is sovereign under the United United Nations Charter and under the rules of the international community in other words Canada only Canada and the, our representatives, called the Governor of Canada, determine 
what people can enter into Canada who are not Canadians, uh, whether they come in as refugees or they come in as landed immigrants or people applying for permanent citizenship or they merely are only coming in as a student visa or, or, or a tourist visa. Find it. That's the domain of the government. They also have the complete exclusive authority to determine what goods will come in and at what rate. The American government, their, their agent for the Americans, which is now the Trump administration, has determined, rightly or wrongly, that they believe that the tariffs being charged by Canada are too high. And that's their right. I mean, they control whoever goes into the American market, just as Canada controls whatever comes into the Canadian market. And that's just a reality. And so what we're, uh, many of the objections to Trump are we don't like his arguments. Well, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. He could actually stand up and say, I have no arguments against Canada coming in, but I don't want them coming in anyways. And he still has the authority to impose tariffs, negotiate, including no deal at all. That's what I think we failed to uh, realize in this. He has, no pun intended, the trump cards on the U.S. side of what will go into the states. Of course we have the trump card of what will come into Canada. The problem is... We want access much more to the American market than the Americans want to the Canadian market. And we, we don't really want to acknowledge that. We keep saying, look, it's, it's equal, equal, fair is fair. You know, they want access to us, we want access to them. But the reality is, no, we need access a lot more badly to the American market than they do to the Canadian market, which means we've got to compromise. And if we don't, and we can say, no way, no way, well, then we will end up without a NAFTA agreement, and we will suffer the consequences that have been estimated and calculated. One is a collapse in the Canadian collapse, a very significant uh, depreciation in the Canadian dollar, which will hit every last one of us because all of us buy stuff at the grocery store, cucumbers and, and, you know, and so forth. And uh, so we will bear the brunt of the price. Or we do realpolitik and say, look, we don't like this person, but we're still going to do business with him. We're still going to come to a deal. We're still going to, we're probably going to have to compromise because it's in our strategic self-interest to have a deal. And, and that's the, what I call the realpolitik school or the Henry Kissinger school. You, de- you can negotiate with people who you think are completely odious and disgusting. You've talked about this in the past, and I want to, in light of some of these uh, new uh, statements that are being made from both sides here, uh, these that's Trudeau and that's Trump over in this corner and over in this yeah. corner. But let's face it, this is really Christia Freeland and Robert Lighthizer. And and I, I know that the uh, U.S. ambassador to uh, Canada, Kelly Kraft, yesterday said, like, yeah, I heard what the president said, but she said Freeland and, and Lighthizer get along just fine. And and they seem to, to get along. And that's that's where a deal is going to be made up anyway. I know Trump has to sign off on it, as, as mm-hmm. the Canadian Parliament does. Mm-hmm. But if those two don't get together and come up with something, there, there's nothing to sign anyway. I agree with you, but as you pointed out, at the end of the day, whatever they negotiate still has to be signed off and approved by their respective leaders. So if Lighthizer produces something that, uh, that Trump doesn't agree with, no matter how rational or reasonable it is, it's not going to happen. And we know, because he said publicly so many times, and has been reported widely, it's, uh, th- there's no mystery to what's going on. They want a concession on dairy. And they want concessions, apparently, or it's less clear on this one, on the investor dispute mechanism. 
and the Canadian side has leaked that the um, that their uh, the Americans are also demanding opening up cultural industries. Although there's no evidence of that, that the Americans really are. I think there's some spin there. So my point is, out of all the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of industries that exist in this country, we're talking about really one industry. We're talking about the dairy industry. And we can do something on investor dispute. The Mexicans did, by the way. And I'm not saying we'll get all of what we want, but I'm sure we can get uh, some of what we want. And and then it really comes down to one single, simple, not so simple, but singular variable. Are we going to blink? Are we going to concede um, on dairy uh, to the Americans, given that it's so important to those critical Rust Belt states? And then, the, and if we aren't, well, then what we're saying is we're going to let the NAFTA deal, which is absolutely essential to the well-being of all Canadians and the totality of the Canadian economy, we're going to let it go down the tubes to say in order to protect and save 9,000 dairy farmers. And I just think that this is madness on steroids. I, I just think I can't imagine going. You know, if you're going to lose NAFTA and and you know lose it on something big and really, really, really important. Losing it over 9,000 dairy farmers out of 37 million Canadians. I mean, this is nuts. The dairy farmers don't even represent 5% of all the farmers in Canada. In other words, 95% of farmers in Canada are not protected under supply management. So they're a minority, the dairy farmers, are a minority even amongst farmers. And farmers are only 2% of the GDP of Canada. 98% 98% of us don't work in agriculture. So I'm saying, what on earth are we doing? We're in the digital economy, the 21st century, and here we are defending an 18th century or 19th century economy that represents 5% of farmers and 2% of, uh, of uh, GDP. I mean, not, not dairy. That's the totality of agriculture is 2% of GDP. And the milk industry is probably one-tenth of 1% of Canadian GDP. So you couldn't find a more unimportant and trivial industry than this one. And yet we're willing to march over the cliff into the valley of the shadow of death. March the 600, onward, onward. We're determined to march into the valley of the shadow of death to save 9,000 dairy farmers. This does not make any sense whatsoever. As I was uh, finishing off reading the Woodward book, uh, Fear, uh, over the weekend, uh, Ian, there was a, a two-line segment that, that Woodward didn't make a whole lot of, but it just it was a eureka moment for me as I was reading this. And he talked about firing off some of the people he didn't like and putting Wilbur Ross in commerce and hiring Lighthizer to be his chief negotiator for trade, not just for NAFTA, but for trade. Uh, and wow. one of the reasons he did that, apparently, according to Woodward's book, is that Lighthizer is a vocal opponent of the dispute management system that was in place yeah. in the current NAFTA deal. That was, yeah. that was his thing. Uh, so it seems to me as if he's entrenched about that, we're yeah. entrenched about supply management. And yeah. both sides are going to have to say, okay, I'll do this if you do this. And I don't know that they're there yet. Uh, I agree with you. Uh, I agree. Those are the two critical issues. No question about it. And it, and just just uh, to, I didn't realize that uh, the book had uh, brought that out that he wanted. It's, on, it's only two lines in in, in a paragraph. Well, fascinating. Yeah, because it, it just kind of glossed it over. But yeah. I thought, whoa, that. But does this ever matter now? But just for the benefit of your of your listeners, um, this dispute mechanism, this this idea of a dispute mechanism body that's independent of the government of the day, and it's not staffed by uh, politicians or partisans, but staffed by independent trade economists and bureaucrats and so forth and lawyers. Um, this is an idea that's been become very uh, popular in um, 
and not just in uh, the Republican Party, but in the United States, uh, amongst the trade people and governors and so forth, there's a lot of unhappiness with the trade dispute mechanism because they feel that it's a, a mechanism that other countries have used successfully against the U.S. So what I'm trying to say is it's not just Donald Trump and Lighthizer that are opposed to it. I strongly support it because it stops, I believe, other countries from cheating. I want every country to have a dispute mechanism so that when that country cheats, all countries cheat, by the way, we cheat, the Germans cheat, everybody cheats on trade, then you have a mechanism to, to go after the cheaters. And that's why I'm such a big believer in this. But I, I want to get across the idea that it's not just two people in the U.S. that are opposed to a, a dispute mechanism. There's an increasing number of people in the whole trade arena who, uh, in the U.S., I'm talking, Americans, who really don't like uh, trade dispute mechanisms because they think that they're used by other countries and other companies outside of the U.S. to attack American interests. And that's why they've been pushing back so hard. Uh, I'm, I'm not even going to delve too deeply into his comments about uh, the, the negotiator, i.e. Krista Freeland. Yeah. Uh, my, my feeling on that, you know what, if, if she was on the other side, he'd be praising her. I mean, uh, uh, anybody who's read even part of Donald Trump's book about, you know, the art of the deal, uh, yeah. that's the kind of negotiator he wants on his side. So I can understand why she gets under his skin. Uh, and, and But that's fine. But at the same time, uh, they are getting their marching orders. I mean, I think she's a very, very intelligent woman. I think Lighthizer's a very intelligent man. Yes, he is. But uh, let's face it. He's already taken one potential deal to the president, and the president ripped it up and said no. So, yeah. you know, he knows exactly where he's got to go here. Yeah. I, I, I think you just nailed it. I think, you know, the, the, uh, the tragedy in this thing is we have two very deeply emotionally committed leaders. And I don't mean that they're crazy. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying they, you know, Justin Trudeau tries to come across as the rational, reasonable guy. He is just as ideologically uh, uh, committed to his progressive agenda, as as Trump is to his uh, agenda. So Absolutely, there is no. They're both hardcore ideologues, in my view. They are not, you know, the art of the compromise, which was the sort of the traditional liberal uh, position that politics is the art of the com of the uh, possible and the art of compromise. Lester Pearson famously said that. I don't believe the truth in that space. So you've got two ideologues at the top. And then you've got these very two extremely competent technocrats, in the best sense of the word, underneath them. And I'm talking Lighthizer and Chrystia Freeland. And, uh, and, and so we've got two really good people <laughs> on the file in the room negotiating, reporting up to two hotheads. To be, but now I know most people don't think of Trudeau as a hothead, but anybody who's willing to sell out the country and let the country go down the tubes for 9,000 farmers, I call a hothead. In my language, in my vocabulary, I, I'd like to think what they're calling each other's boss behind closed doors. <laughs> I, there may be a lot more kinship there between the two than we're aware. Ian, thanks as always. Appreciate the time today. My pleasure, Bill. Thank Ian you. Ian Lee from the Sprout School of Business. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from nine to noon on nine hundred CHML.